Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Chinese education system has had its criticisms, but many argue that it delivers, at least in the larger cities of Shanghai and Hong Kong. Students are pushed to achieve by studying hard, with many attending after-school tutoring sessions, and qualities such as respect and dedication are held to a higher standard than that of many Western countries. Today on the podcast, we'll be hearing from Lenora Chu, an American writer and journalist based in Shanghai. She and her husband enrolled their two sons in the Chinese education system, and she wrote a book about the experience called Little Soldiers, an American Boy, a Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. We moved here in 2010. My husband and I were both American journalists sent to cover China for a Western audience. And we happened to have a little boy. He needed a school just down the street, was one of the best schools in the city. We decided to enroll him. And the reasons were as varied as we wanted him to learn Mandarin. It was an affordable option. And the Chinese are revered for, you know, imparting discipline on their students. So we wanted a little bit of that medicine. But a state-run school, you didn't go for an international school. So there's a, there's a difference between the options available there, isn't there? That's right. And the international schools in Shanghai cost up to 40,000 US dollars a year. So it is a leap. And it didn't really occur to us to consider that option that early on for a three-year-old. At the same time, as a journalist, I became interested in the topic because of something called PISA. And this is a test that the OECD puts out every three years. Shanghai participated for the first time in 2010, and they came in number one in the world in math, reading, and science. Mm. And it was just interesting to me that I had the language skills, the journalism skills, and the opportunity living in Shanghai to sort of pull the curtain back on the system that people describe often in extremes. It's either the world's best students or it's rote learners, no creativity. You know, which is it? The answer can't be that simple or bipolar. But having that high a score, I mean, I know there's different things that go into getting a score like that, but it must mean that they deliver on the education. You know, these, these students are really learning. So did you kind of enroll your child with the thought that the cost is going to be worth it? I didn't know the answer to that question. I didn't know what exactly the classroom experience would be on a personal level as a parent. You know, journalistically, I knew just from talking to Chinese students and Chinese parents and educators, you know, as my reporting continued over the next five years, I got a very good sense of where China was wanting to head with its reforms. But on a personal level, I had faith that you know, we could not necessarily cherry pick, but we could figure out what our son would benefit from and what we could fix at home. You know, no situation is perfect. And as our journey sort of continued, that turned out to be the case. There was a lot of negatives that we had to try to um, make up for. Yeah, so you've, you've got to essentially unteach him some of the stuff that he's going to get at school, maybe not the knowledge. I mean, you know, you, you want him to get the math education, you want to get reading and writing, but maybe some of the attitudes, some of the things that he's exposed to, you've got to put that in perspective when he gets home. Is that something that you needed to prepare for? Let me tell you, do you know about the egg story? So the first week of school, my son comes home and he says, my teacher Chen forced me to eat eggs. She basically lined up her 27 toddlers in the classroom and spooned eggs into each of their mouths. And my son being who he is, 
he spit, he kept spitting it out. And on the fourth time, he had no choice but to swallow. It took a while for me to get the story out, but that's essentially what happened. So I march off to confront Teacher Chen, and I say, you know, in the West, we don't use methods of force. And she immediately challenged me. She says, how do you do it? And I say, we incent them with a decision. We trust them to choose. She asked me if it works. And later, she scolds me for challenging her authority in front of a child. So I knew immediately that you know, in Chinese education, and I was getting this message from not only the teacher, but from the principals, talking to other Chinese parents, there is an obeisance that you have to submit to when you're in the Chinese system. Mm -hmm. The teachers expect people to fall in line. Not just the students by the sounds of it, but the parents as well. Exactly, the parents. And that for me was the hardest to adjust to. And, and I didn't learn my lesson very quickly. There were other things I didn't like. He was told not to go down the slide head first. You know, I didn't like the way that he was required to sit in class or lie still at nap time when he'd outgrown his nap, all of these things. But eventually I brought in the story because I wanted to examine these issues in Chinese terms. And I found two Chinese uh, high school students, I followed them throughout their educational journey, and also a family from rural Anhui. What is it like for them? What is it like in the countryside? China's not a monolith, and I wanted to make sure those stories came across too. It seems to be a very controlled system, but that's something that the West perceives about the schools as well over here, that they are very conformed. Is creativity encouraged? Is there a sense of individuality in these classrooms or is it that everyone has to conform? If you look at the latest national education reform plan, the Chinese government is, is concerned about this in certain spheres. This is language pulled from the plan. It says we need to create a fine environment for independent thinking. They understand that Chinese students are not great at offering up their own ideas, about exploring their own curiosities, about independently expressing themselves in a creative way. And these things take practice. This is one part of the creative process. What they're good at, and which is also part of the creative process, which I think Westerners tend to forget, is that creativity, the creative process, also requires a strong foundation of knowledge and expertise, right? If you think about it, you cannot cure cancer if you're not highly trained in medicine, right? It's not just simply about expressing yourselves in an unstructured way. So there are multiple components to the creative process. And I think we, I at least, as an American, I tended to look at what I was seeing in the Chinese classroom and assumed there was no creativity happening, but it's complicated is the answer. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah. So they do certain things well, and in the West, we tend to emphasize other things that we do better. But that doesn't mean that it's monolithically bad here in China. Is individuality something that they would want to encourage in the school system? Uh, I'm kind of of two thoughts about this. One is that their methods deliver good results. Why would you want to change that sort of system? The other is if you encourage individuality, you encourage people to question systems. And we know how that's gone in China's past. These are great points. Now, if you look at the way the Chinese look at PISA, they aren't proud. They're not, you know, waving the pom-poms around. They understand that PISA, in fact, might take them a step backwards because the Chinese tend to celebrate results, but they understand that PISA does not mean they have a good fundamental education. That's one thing to understand, is while the rest of the world might be hailing PISA, the Chinese understand there's a lot of work to be done. As far as independent thinking, I actually asked a Beijing professor, I said, how can the Communist Party, how can the system encourage independent thinking while also trying to maintain tight political control over the curriculum, over what is discussed in classrooms? And I said, this is antithetical to where it's trying to head. And I challenged him, and he said, you're absolutely right. Now, this admission on his part came after about an hour and a half of talking to him, and he lost his guard. But what he said to me 
was that the party would like to encourage critical thinking in everything, particularly math and science, but not in the fields of politics, ethics, and religion. Can you separate the two? You know, mm. probably not. But that is what they are hoping to do. And how controlled is the curriculum? I understand, for example, that you know Shakespeare is selectively used, censored, taught. Do you see yourself in the future sitting your son down with Shakespeare and going, right, this is what you're missing out a character in my book, her name is Amanda, and she went through one of the best high schools in Shanghai. And it wasn't until she spent her junior year on an exchange program in the U.S. that she encountered Shakespeare in its unabridged form. Mm. In Chinese textbooks, they pull out snippets, and it often ties into a theme or a message. And with The Merchant of Venice, Shylock was unbridled capitalism gone wrong. And it wasn't until she went over to the U.S., read the entire Merchant of Venice, and was able to discuss it in the classroom, and she realized that Shylock was a creation of society. You know, society in some sense ostracized him and created, you know, sort of what he became. That was her words. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. This is a problem, and frankly, it is getting worse. If you look at what the State Council has been doing to textbooks over the last year or two, it's, it's gotten worse. Messages have been played up. For example... Last year, they decided that the Sino-Japanese conflict, the second one, would be lengthened from, was it eight years to 14? It coincided with um, the Imperial Japanese Army's invasion of Manchuria. The idea was to incite more patriotism amongst the Chinese and more hatred of the Japanese. But you talk to individual students, especially in Shanghai and Beijing, we're talking about middle, upper middle class who have money to travel. One student says, I went to Tokyo and I didn't see the Japanese devils that the government is telling me to see. And actually, I really like sashimi, you know. So in some sense, the lid has been popped in urban areas. I'm not sure that you can just pop it back down the way the party is trying to. But some of it is getting through. Absolutely. If you were living anywhere but Shanghai, would you be sending your son to school if you were in a rural area or something like that? How much change do you see across the country? It is a system that you do have to divide between urban and rural. I mean, there are many ways to divide the system. Now it's public versus private. Even at the student population, you know, is it the Gaokao track kids or in the cities, the ones who are fortunate to have choices to leave? Foreign teachers who come over for observations will be shown highly scripted classrooms. Those teachers will have been informed and prepared for weeks uh, in advance. But what my book offers is that I was able to slip into classrooms. It took years, but once you get the right access, you can sit in the back. Um, I sat in the back of a political high school classroom. And because I look the way I do, I'm foreign, but I look Chinese, I was able to see things that I think most people aren't. Mm. As far as rural classrooms, in some ways they are less scripted. To me, it's more interesting to visit, say, rural Hunan and see what's happening outside of Hefei or in the far west of that province. And I did. And there are funding issues. These schools have trouble keeping good teachers. China's trying to do all kinds of things, such as incent highly educated teachers from urban areas to go to rural areas and fast-tracking them for promotions and pay bumps. It is really sort of a dual track system, absolutely. And it's harder to get into good schools from certain localities. Here are the numbers, for example, if you're from Shanghai or have what's called a Shanghai Hukou, the right household registration, you're 55 times more likely to get into, say, Fudan University, mm-hmm. one of the top four, than the national average. The odds are very much against you if you're a rural child. Does your son have a different experience at, in school from his classmates? Is he treated differently at all, being a, a Western child with a, a mum who's writing a book like this? The first time 
I saw my son with his classmates, I realized that his teachers were calling him little Lawai Lawai, which means foreigner, little foreigner, come over here. And I was mortified, but he didn't care, you know, and, and that's really the gift of, of this journey to me as a parent is that our kids are actually much more resilient than you think. I think you know, the average American parent would have been mortified. And I tried, I tried that where I tried to challenge his teachers and say, you can't call my son a little foreigner. You can't force him to eat eggs. You know, and I found out very quickly what they thought of this American parent's challenge. Whether or not you agree that he should be called little foreigner, the point is, this is a completely different culture. And in some sense, we have to understand and and give it a, a little bit of respect. I'm not saying we should force feed our kids, but I'm just saying that our kids are more resilient than you think. Are you kind of watching your son though, going, at what point am I going to feel so uncomfortable with this? Have you talked about this at, at home and, and do you know what point and what line you aren't willing to, to accept? There was a lot of anxiety in the early years. I would say the first two or three years, just ridden with anxiety, watching for signs, interviewing parents, teachers, how long do we stay in? How harmful is this? What are the benefits? Really just trying to weigh it very objectively. And during this time, he really began to adjust, and I began to see all, all the positives um, of his experience. But it required that initial leap of faith. I would say that for most of us, like myself, and even other Chinese of similar, I would say, resources and options, we say that we like the primary school system for its rigor, the way it teaches math, for gaining Chinese literacy up through fifth or sixth grade, but then it's time to get out. Most Chinese will say that. And you've called your book Little Soldiers. That gives a very firm grasp on, on what you think the end product is of the Chinese school system. I named the book Little Soldiers because of a song that many Chinese kindergartners are taught. It's about marching like a little soldier, looking off into the distance and working hard towards your goal. And I would say that that characterizes the experience for most Chinese, and I felt it was apt. There's a military-like quality to China's education system, but he has us at home. He's lucky to have us at home. He definitely has our Western influence, and we do a lot of sports, music. It was just what we think is important that the Chinese system doesn't really value as much, you know, in its primary school education. So we're very aware of where the deficiencies are. This is a question I should have asked earlier. How is creativity handled or or not handled in this sort of level of schooling? In Shanghai, which is a pilot district for reforms, some principals have been given latitude to decide up to 20% of how their kids are spending their day. And they're instituting things such as creativity classes, you know. The quotation marks are mine. I asked, what do you do in a creativity class? And one principal told me, well, we hand out popsicle sticks and we let kids build. Okay, but what's the creativity element? So they're trying to figure it out. One principal in Beijing told me, we think creativity is about making choices, allowing students to choose. So they've done things such as let kids pick whether they're interested in rock climbing or frisbee. They've introduced electives, and they think just by the act of allowing students to choose something they're interested in, that will you know, encourage creativity. Obviously, they're trying to figure it out. At a very high level, when you talk to researchers who are actually working on policy, they understand because they're reading documents and research. But when it filters down to the school level or what individual principals or teachers are doing, it's not so effective or so uniformly applied. So the experience really varies depending on where you are and what school you're in. When it gets to the the high school level, speaking from the Australian context here, we go to different classes. Our 
classmates change depending on what period we go to and those sort of things. Is that not an element of, of China's school system? Can you explain that to me? That is a great question. That's huge. My student Amanda in the book calls her classroom experience a chamber of stagnation. And it's because you sit in the same room all day long with the same kids from grades one through six, and then generally from seven through nine. And then if you're lucky enough to go into high school, grades 10 through 12, it's only the teacher at the front that changes. Now I've talked to a couple of Beijing teachers who say, we want the faces around them to change that encourages sociability. So now they've introduced what's called zoban, or essentially walk class. So you get up at the bell and you walk from math to history to rock climbing or frisbee and the faces change and you can make friends with different students. This is something that they're looking at. But yeah. it's not a feature of Chinese education, not at all. It feels like a very sterile kind of learning environment then. I can't imagine how that is. But then again, by the time you've got to that age in school, you don't know any different and you aren't given the opportunity to know any different. So it might work. What my student friends tell me is that it, you could say that it promotes more of a, of a group think. You're always in the same room with the same people. But on the flip side, these are units. They sort of journey through their educational experience together and it becomes a private sphere in which you're able to offer up your thoughts more freely. So I've seen it different ways. I personally would not enjoy it. I really like being able to move around. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about the experience of writing this book? Once you first decided to, how hard was it and how much pushback did you get trying to get into Chinese classrooms or were you embraced? Did you try and get into your son's own classroom? And I'm sure they'd appreciate a parent sitting at the back with a raised eyebrow trying to in interfere at times. And It's very difficult to get into the Chinese classroom and I was turned down at my son's school. And it actually took a couple of years of talking to Chinese friends about my mission and what I wanted to do and they began to make introductions, guanxi, right? Guanxi, you know, network connections. Through that, I was able to eventually gain access, and that was really the only way. I kept reporting. The deeper you go into the subject, it just gets more and more interesting. I was discovering things that had never been written about, but unfortunately, I had to distill it down to 100,000 words. I think my original draft was twice as long, mm. and I worked with my editor to focus. For example, I really wanted to delve into this sort of issue of rural inequality. If you think about where China's headed, it really has hundreds of millions languishing in the countryside who have such a poor quality education that they will not be able to participate in a higher wage, higher skilled economy. What do you do with these millions of Chinese? That to me was a burning question and I wanted to spend several chapters on it, but in the end we had to cut that back. So I think the writing process is about making smart decisions, not only about what to include, but what to cut out. And, and hopefully the overall picture is a comprehensive guide to Chinese education. Does the Chinese school system give you the luxury, the option of not reaching a certain level? I don't get the impression that there's a lot of leeway or option to fall behind. You're absolutely right. When kids begin falling behind, there's little safety net for them, right? Chinese education is about passing exams to get into the next level of schooling. The numbers are basically this, 18 million babies born every year. And in Shanghai, at least, it's basically a race. It feels like a race to advance. I meet families who, at the age of three, their kids are taking eight extracurriculars to try to differentiate themselves for that primary school entrance interview. 
okay? I'm not kidding. The numbers really get dramatic at the high school entrance exam. About half those kids fall off the ladder. We all know about the college entrance exam. About eight or nine million sit for the test, and you lose about a third of them. They don't advance into regular university. So education has a different purpose in China. It's not necessarily about educating the individual. It's about trying to pass tests, about creating proper citizens of China. It's very different from what we think of schooling in the West. That's Lenora Chu, American journalist based in Shanghai and author of *Little Soldiers: An American Boy, a Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve*. You have been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and on SoundCloud. Reviews, as always, are appreciated. You can follow Lenora Chu on Twitter at Lenora Chu, and you can follow Latrobe Asia at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.